Welcome once again to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederata.com. So kind of oddly tonight, uh, we're going to start by talking about another really interesting Quaker. Now, I didn't do this specifically on purpose. Um, you know, I have no particular uh, fascination with Quakerism in general. I mean, I think it's one of the better religions, but other than that, um, and I didn't do this again uh, for any reason, but this person is also kind of fantastic and is a little near and dear to my heart for a different reason than Benjamin Lay, the Quaker Comet. And so I'd like to introduce you, if you're not already acquainted, to the story of public universal friend who started life as a woman named Jemima Wilkinson. When she was 24 years old, at the age of 1776, she died of a fever at her home in Cumberland, Rhode Island, as the story goes. And while she was dying, she received a vision of archangels. Wilkinson, quote, dropped the dying flesh and yielded up the ghost. And according to the declaration of the angels, the spirit took full possession of the body it now animates. Historian Scott Larson took a look at this gender nonconforming example in a paper for Early American Studies way back in the fall of 2014. As I I resurrected spirit, the friend defied the line between living and dead, body and spirit, divine and human, and male and female. Larson notes that friend began preaching and prophesizing a coming apocalypse, And this ended up leading to the friend being expelled from a Quaker meeting that Wilkinson's family belonged to. Friend then took to the road in a mix of women's and men's clothes, as well as clerical robes. They attracted followers who gave up families and livelihoods to join them in what, frankly, we'd probably today called a religious cult, and actually probably they called uh, it a cult back then as well. Uh, they would go on to purchase a parcel of land in upstate New York that they dubbed Jerusalem, as you do, and at its height, it was home to as many as 260 people. Friends followers did not use gendered pronouns for the prophet. Now, it's important not to try to place friend in a modern framework and suggest that they were, as we conceive it today, non-binary or transgender. Instead, they saw this as a matter of religious faith, and their followers didn't even think of friend as a person, but as a spiritual being. Larson notes that genderlessness while taken seriously as a divine state to be experienced after death, 
was not imagined as a space of freedom wherein people were encouraged to follow their feelings, intuitions, desires, or individual sense of self. Rather, it was a giving up of the self. It was a fully possessed self, passive to the point of death and resurrection. Now, of course, that didn't stop the neighbors from being upset at the gender nonconformity on display. One hostile neighbor wrote that James Parker, an important member of the community, claimed to be possessed by the prophet Elijah and wore, quote, a white gown with long sleeves and a girdle, whatever he fancied might belong to the costume of the ancient prophets. Another report mentions a masculine woman who traveled with the friend and who was suspected of either being a cross-dressing man or a woman who was involved with the friend. In either respect, they were considered to be a problem. They were also compared to the devil, and Friend was accused of seduction, fraud, and at one point even infanticide. Now, this was a time when many different religious movements uh, were taking hold, and some of them had new takes on gender. The Quakers were actually pretty revolutionary for believing that men and women had spiritual equality. The Shakers had um, a lot of women who were considered uh, leaders in the community. And the Moravians apparently expressed an erotic connection with a feminized Christ. I have to admit, I don't know much about the Moravians. Larson writes, what distinguished distinguishes the friend, however, is the specific claim to have died and to have been resurrected as a new being, a being beyond gender. This claim made the public universal friend an international sensation, and the response to the friend, to the friend's complex performance of theological gender, shows widespread public engagement with possibilities of genderlessness and gender crossing in early America. Now, interestingly, it's quite clear that Friends sermons uh, did not show any kind of uh, progressiveness on the front of gender. Uh, this is really reinforcing the idea that, um, you know, this was not a person who saw themselves in the way that someone might today. And so the sermons were also neither innovative nor original, but consisted mainly of Bible texts. Susan Juster, a historian at the University of Michigan, along with Larson, writes that what people saw when Jemima Wilkinson took to the public, to the pulpit, made a greater impression than what they heard. Now, Juster and other modern scholars have sought to reclaim Wilkinson as a transgressive female who used gender ambiguity to forge a place for herself in a religious world dominated by men, hence her use of the given name. But for Larson, the important part of the story is that Friend doesn't embody a binary 
and doesn't necessarily fit into any of the neat boxes we like to put people into. He writes, Engaging in historical work from a transgender perspective opens up new modes of analyzing gender as broadly unstable and mutable, particularly by taking serious the possibility that gender gets crossed, changed, destabilized, and remade in ways that are not restricted to two genders. Larson has specifically tried to reframe the way he writes about the friend to eliminate gendered pronouns when possible, except when quoting from historical sources. He notes that this can be difficult and that historical scholarship emphasizes given names and pronouns. For instance, archives often list information on the friend under the name Jemima Wilkinson. But this is an important project for scholarship through the trans lens. Quote, the claim that it is too hard to practice new language about a person is part of the systemic delegitimization of trans people, just as ignorance is power, as Eve Sedgwick argued in Epistemology of the Closet, the claimed incapacity to think, speak, and write gender differently shores up the gender normativity and cisgendered privilege of historical scholarship that insists on using names and pronouns that individuals have refused. And so I think that's really important that um, if we really want to look at history through a lens that is more broad and does not require people to be forced into one or another basket, that we have to be really careful about requiring certain forms of speech and pronouns and things like that. And I mean, it's also important on the other side not to claim people who didn't think of themselves in the way that we think about people who in modern times embrace um, being tr transgender or being non-binary. And, you know, it's great to sort of pull people who seem seriously to have been under that rubric. But again, in this case, it's not really a appropriate label. And so again, it's important to remember that the friend's transgressive gender identity was deeply rooted in religion. And of course, this once again problematizes how we speak of them. Larson notes that using Jemima Wilkinson discounts the friend's own gender and theological claims, but using the friend implies an acceptance of a theological claim in addition to a name and pronoun. Now, returning to the friend themselves, Yale's Ezra Stiles noted in his diary, she is about 30, straight, well-made, light complexion, black eyes, round face, chestnut dark hair, wears light cloth cloak with a cape like a man's, purple gown, long sleeves to wristbands, 
man's shirt down to the hands with neckband, purple handkerchief or neckcloth tied around the neck like a man's, no cap, hair combed, turned over, and not long, wears a watchman's hat. Note how strongly the masculine garments are emphasized. And so that is something that was very clear to people. But the point that friend was doing was not to specifically perform masculinity. The point was to live in the center because that was the place where spiritual beings resided. And so when the Quaker missionary William Savory met the friend in Jerusalem, he noted, she was attired in a loose gown or rather a surplus of calico and some parts of her dress were quite masculine as she is not supposed to be of either sex. So this neutrality is manifest in her personal appearance. Now, after the death of the friend in 1819, many articles were written linking their gender ambiguity to false chastity and religious imposture. One heavily implied, as noted, that the friend's companion uh, was a man disguised as a woman or that the traveling companion was a masculine woman. And once again, in both cases, the idea implied that there was sexual miscontact failed as religious fervor between the two. Larson writes, Using the tropes of popular and political pornography, the critic paints the friend's gender ambiguity and false piety as dual covers for sexual sin, a sign not of divinity, but of fallen humanity. He goes on to cite Elizabeth Rees from Bodies in Doubt, an American History of Intersex. Rees argues that sex ambiguity was understood as monstrous or otherworldly in the 18th century and became understood as fraud and deceit in the 19th century. Noting that the friend's claim of divine genderless could, genderlessness could be read both as signaling human fraud and the work of the devil. People who examined the dress of the friend were looking both for gender truth, but also to seek whether the friend was divine or devilish. Beyond dress, the friend was also said to have had an ambiguously gendered voice. One aspect that most likely drew ire was the way in which the friend sought to emulate Christ. They were said to have worn their hair in a way we kind of think of still, uh, if you think of the popular image of uh, white Jesus today, uh, you would think of them having hair parted in the middle and sort of curled around the shoulders. Um, and one of the things that made people really cranky uh, was that apparently members of the group engaged in reenacting the scene from Luke 7, 37 to 38, in which a sinful woman washes Jesus's feet with tears, dried them on her hair, and anointed them with oil. Again, this was once, this was once again met with pornographic criticism. Now, the 
community was staunchly supportive and embodied the friend's genderlessness by refusing to give their given name or pronouns. Stories abound of people looking for Jemima Wilkinson, only to be told by a community member that they knew no such person. This can be seen not only as a support of the person of the friend, but also as a signifier of the deep theology of the group. This, quote, generated a theological language that marked the boundaries of communal life and belief. Referring to the friend without name or pronoun produced a new language community, and this community engaged in a communal theological practice of acknowledging divine genderlessness. Claiming, when strangers asked for Jemima Wilson to know no such person, thus performed new linguistic, social, and theological formations of gender. The friend was so committed to the change that they almost lost the entirety of their land due to their refusal to use the legal name given to them. Even their will was contested into the 1830s due to the use of the name the Universal Friend. And obviously, use of the language was indicative of being either in-group or out-group. This was found, for instance, in the writing of those who left the community. While in the community, they refer exclusively to variations on the friend. But once they left, they began using she and Jemima Wilkinson to signify the break with the friend's teachings. And as another important way in which the friend cannot and should not be claimed as a non-binary or transgender icon in any way, while they personally believed in their own genderless nature, they did not preach that anyone could cast off the strictures of their assigned sex. They did not fight for gender equality in the wider world and preached a rather standard set of misogynistic and anti-sex tropes as well as embracing martial and masculinist theology, theological language, as they preached that the end times were nearing. And one cannot forget that the community was founded and built upon land that was originally owned by the Iroquois. The friend also was a party to colonial endeavors. Speaking in October 1794, at the negotiations for the Treaty of Canandaigua. There the friend took an opportunity to preach to those assembled. The next day, three Seneca women used this as a way to have their voices heard and are recorded as having suggested that the white people had been the cause of all the Indians' distresses, that they had pressed and squeezed them together that one of the white women had yesterday told the Indians to repent, and they now called the white people to repent, for they had as much need as the Indians, and that they should wrong the Indians no more. But again, it should be noted that in Seneca communities, there was a tradition of women having ways to speak, but this was a convenient way for them to assert themselves in a colonialist context. 
it wasn't that friend invited them to speak. It was that they used friend's speech in order to invite themselves to speak. Lawson concludes the article in this way. It is tempting to imagine beyond as a site of freedom from worldly categories, but the friend's history warns us that beyondness can ground colonializing ventures by imagining the beyond as an empty space available for new formations. Beyond is a promising site of queer scholarship, but it should not be equated with gender freedom. And, you know, part of the reason that I find this story interesting is that, you know, it's pretty much exactly how we are dealing with things today. Challenges to the gender binary are more visible than ever. And that has continued to ignite a backlash, mostly from the religious and based in things like pornographic satires and projection of evil that is really, really just terrible. Um, and it's important to sort of look back at how people who have performed gender differently in the past were treated and how they were received in order to inform how we look at people today and make strategies in order to create a better world in which people are not separated from the rest of society. And so, yeah, partially this does strike close to home. Um, I do struggle with the fact that there is a lot of hatred towards uh, myself and people I love. Uh, and I think that it is important to try and uh, continue to seek ways to make sense of this and to try and find ways to connect with people who are doing the same kind of uh, processes that you are and trying to make sense of all of this in a world that seems new and yet is very old. All right. We are going to take a break and do some show promos and some PSAs. And when we come back, we will move on to talk about ancient Mesopotamia. Do stay tuned. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's Subculture Music Program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. 
In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. And we are back. You are still listening to Evidence-Based Radio. And so, as I said, we are going to be moving back in time to ancient Mesopotamia. And so we're going to be talking about some women who are being pulled out of the shadows and given more scholarship than they have been in the past. And so both of these stories originated from the from Atlas Obscura interviews from the series, She Was There. And so there's lots more. If you want to learn more, I might end up pulling a few more myself. And so the first person I want to talk about is the world's oldest named writer. And that was a woman named Enheduanna. Her name meant ornament of heaven, and she would have been born in the latter half of the 23rd century BC. Just think about that. This is a woman who was writing over 4,000 years ago. And of course, she would have been writing in cuneiform on clay tablets. And so it is extremely good that we were able to find copies of her work. Now, they are later copies. They are not copies from the 23rd century. But the scholarship is pretty clear that these are absolutely from Enheduanna and that she was a real person and really did author these works. And so Enheduanna was the high priestess of the city of Ur in Mesopotamia. This role would have been both religious and political, and she was the daughter of a powerful king, King Sargon, and so she was definitely familiar with statecraft, or statecraft, and uh, interestingly, her writings advocate for peace among a fractured kingdom, and she was also a poet. She wrote the myth of Anana and Ebi and a collection of 42 temple hymns, as well as two hymns to Anana. Madeline Dayani of the Metropolitan Museum of Art explains that she was the daughter of King Sargon, ruler of the Akkadians. Sargon conquered the area of Sumer in what is now present-day southern Iraq and installed his daughter as a priestess of the moon god, Nana. And so for the Akkadians, Nana was one of the most important deities. And Heduana took her job very seriously again and used her poetry to try and unite the people of Akkad and Sumer 
by uniting their goddesses. She wrote a series of poems and other writings which connected the Sumerian goddess Inanna with the Akkadian goddess Ishtar. One of her most famous poems, The Exaltation of Inanna, became so famous that it was one of the ten texts used for the next several hundred years to help train scribes in cuneiform. At the end of her cycle of temple hymns, she makes it clear who the author was. The compiler of the tablets was Enheduanna. My king, something has been created that no one has created before. Now, we know about her not only from her writing, but also from a disc where she's depicted as presiding over a religious ceremony. Uh, There appears to be a libation being poured out for a god or goddess. She is centered in the work with three male attendants. She is shown with hand raised in a pious gesture and is wearing a cap and flounced garment. We also have a cylinder seal from a person who notes that they worked for Enheduanna. And so it's pretty clear that she was a real person who did, you know, real things. Interestingly, that disc had to be put back together because it had been smashed. And so this is something, and it was in a higher strata than it would have been had it been done during the time when she lived. And so it perhaps uh, suggests some sort of defacement because of a change either in the status of women or in the status of the god that is being, or goddess, that is being uh, worshipped in that disc. And so, yeah, it's very interesting. Now, we know that the priestess at this point had an important role because priestesses were included next to the king's list, indicating they were considered an important important part of the ruling class. So you would have a king and then next to him would be listed the priestesses that served under him. Now, we know of at least two other important priestesses, and they were also daughters of the king. And Heduana combined the two goddesses in order to make it clear that the two people could come together under one rule. Anana was the Sumerian goddess associated with reproduction, fertility, and sexuality. She is a goddess of abundance. Ishtar, on the other hand, was a goddess of war. But when she's combined with Anana, she takes on the reproductive role. And she is also a goddess of crossing boundaries. Some poems talk about her ability to destroy a landscape or make it fertile, and she can also make people and animals change genders. Again, we see gender in this sort of spiritual dynamic. Now, the combined goddess was very important and was worshipped much more consistently than any other gods who uh, came and went in popularity. And in fact, the exaltation begins with something like Inanna, queen of the heavens. So, Anana was a pretty big deal. <laughs> uh, and so 
while Anana was a goddess and thus could be a symbol in a way that mortal women could not be, nevertheless, the king's list makes it clear that priestesses were integrated into the political structure of the time. And of course, when asked why we haven't heard more about Enheduanna and other women in ancient Mesopotamia, Dayani points to the fact that most of the archaeology and scholarship was done by men who were steeped in the idea that women always have played a secondary role to men. She notes, There is a Mesopotamian statue of a woman with a tablet on her lap. Presumably, she's going to write something. When it was found and commented on by early scholars and archaeologists, they said something to the effect of, Women, woman with tablet on her lap, meaning unknown. Just to give you a sense of the dismissiveness of modern scholars. And that dismissiveness has hung over us because what you do in scholarship is you read everything that someone has written on a certain subject. So it influences the way later scholars were writing and thinking as well. And so that's a really important point. Uh, and I think it's a really good reason that a lot more people are moving into the fields of archaeology and history, people from, uh, people who are not white men. Let's, let's be clear, uh, that it's really important for women and people of color to be able to come back and look at history and archaeology through new and different lenses of experience. And so it is so frustrating to think about how much has kind of been left on the cutting room floor because it didn't fit into men's ideas about what exactly was supposed to have happened in these uh, civilizations and cultures. And, you know, I mean, there is an extremely long history of uh, scientific racism, especially in the uh, 18th and 19th centuries. And so it is really important for us to continue to push back against that. Some of that still holds sway over us. The whole idea of race as a... uh difference in any kind of way that is measurable other than the amount of melanin in one's skin, it is just still racism, scientific racism. Um, humans are humans. We are so much closer to one another than we are to anything else. Um, the difference in genomes between a person who is, uh, you know, from Sweden versus someone who's from Kenya, um, for instance, is infinitesimable. And the same problems arise when we look at the role of women. And so I have talked about extensively uh, on this show about places in which women's work has been co-opted or discouraged or ignored or just generally women have been placed into the footnotes 
of history rather than onto the main pages. And of course, one of the big biases in historical and archaeological uh, writing for many, many, many years, and we're just starting to get away from it, is the fact that we really focus on, in some ways, by necessity, absolutely, but the focus was always on the idea of powerful people, mostly men, and what they did and the armies that they led and the civilizations and uh, the uh, empires that they created. And very little was given to the ordinary person who was just trying to live their everyday life and also to the women, even the elite women often are left behind in that kind of structure. And so I think it's really amazing to be able to take this person who wrote 4,000 years ago and be able to read their own words and really be able to feel who they were. And yes, she was undoubtedly a very elite person in this society, but it's still so lovely to be able to actually get to know this person in some respect who lived 4,000 years ago. Um, and so once you have discovered Edhu, Edhuduana, um, she really comes to life. In the exaltation, she talks about herself in the first person. She talks about her struggles. She tells a story of how she had to fend off a usurper for her role and how she had to deal with abuse around that situation. She prays to the moon goddess, but it's Inanna who comes to her rescue in the text. Again, she is showing how these two cultures can become entwined. She's very savvy. She also talks about things like having writer's block. She talks about, you know, having to figure out how to write these exalting words about these goddesses and gods for people to perform sometimes the next day. Now, she hasn't been completely forgotten, obviously, um, but in interesting ways. So depict her depictions of stellar measurements and movements have actually been looked at by uh, astronomers, which is not surprising because astronomy is one of the few places where women have gotten a little bit more credit over the years than in other places. A little bit more, um, but still. Um, <laughs> and so in 2015, a crater on Mercury was named after her. Now, of course, I think it would be a little bit more uh, auspicious if that uh a moon was named after her since she was a goddess. Uh, she was a priestess of the moon goddess. But, you know, we'll have to wait for a new moon to be uh, discovered and maybe we can then make a uh, pitch for it. <laughs> and so uh, to drive home the point that women were important parts of the culture of ancient Mesopotamia, in the late 20s in the southern Iraqi desert, British archaeologist Leonard Woolley excavated what has remained the most lavish tomb ever discovered from Mesopotamia. The 4,500-year-old skeleton 
was resplendent with gold and precious stones. The skeleton had gold rings on every finger, a golden looped belt, large lunate earrings, and a golden headdress with fine leaves of poplar and willow, which would have been local uh, trees, and a crown of standing flowers. She had several necklaces with gold, carnelian, lapis lazuli, and agate. Her choker looks like a modern necklace you might find in a jewelry store today, actually. It's really quite uh, lovely. The skeleton was buried with what was presumed to be three servants. And as I have let slip, uh, didn't mean to, the skeleton was a woman. And so again, this is the most lavish uh, uh, grave that they have found, and it is for a woman named Queen Puabi. And so the queen was able to be uh, identified because she was also buried with a lapis lazuli seal bearing her name and title, Puabi Eresh. She lived at the height of the city of Ur's power around 2600 BC. At the time, Ur was the main harbor for goods coming into India, or coming from India. Ur had trade routes that extended from modern-day India to Sudan. The area of Ur was fertile but lacked natural resources. The lapis from her ornamentation would have come from Afghanistan, the agate and carnelian from the Iranian plateau, and the gold and silver would have also originated in these more eastern regions. Now, there are no contemporary mentions of Queen Puabi, but her seals suggest that she may have actually ruled in her own right, as it makes no mention of a husband, which is normally what a cylinder seal would do. It would say, you know, uh, Queen Puabi or Puabi, Queen wife of, uh, you know, someone else, husband. Now, uh, Ao spoke to archaeologist and textile expert Rita Wright, a professor emerita of anthropology at New York University. And she is the first to truly study Puabi's garments based on the only surviving image of her, which is from that uh, seal, cylinder seal. Now, she wrote a book, Artifacts and Artworks in the Ancient World, and Wright notes that there are basically two strata of women in ancient Ur that are connected with this. And so there are elite women who were connected to power in Ur and were often sent out to do various work as representatives of the state. At the other end of the spectrum were women who worked in creating the textiles that were worn by those elites and others in the city. Interestingly, some of the women there could be managers within the workshop, in the workshops which created wool and linen garments. The seal that gives us the name Puabi, again, also gives us the image. The uh, image is of a banquet which, of course, is indicative of someone who is high-ranking because they can afford 
to be at a lavish banquet. And so therefore she was almost certainly of royal lineage. And she, again, she could have been the wife of a king, but, um, you know, she also could have been, um, the widow of a king. She could have been, uh, the eldest daughter of the king, perhaps. It's not clear, obviously. She died before 2400 to 2350 BC. And so women elites in this era were carriers of kinship alliances. They would travel and engage in rituals. They would, for instance, travel to a village, a town, or other city for a banquet. And here people would observe what they wore. Now, while Wright acknowledges that many lines have been written about her ornamentation, no one has ever examined her actual clothing. On the seal, we see her seated on a chair used by royalty. Her hair is gathered in a kind of bun, and she wears a skirt that is fleeced at the bottom. She's shown wearing her ornamentation, as well as a small cape that goes around her shoulders, arms, and comes down under her breast. Wright speculates that the cape would have been made of linen. While wool was the standard of clothing, the standard for clothing, a linen cape would have been transparent and allowed her ornamentation to be visible to those around her. Linen was only produced for elites and would have been ceremonially appropriate for an important banquet, but also importantly showcased her wealth and status. Now, again, we're left to wonder, why isn't clothing as closely studied as, for instance, the metallurgy of ancient civilizations? Wright suggests, once again, it's a bias against the work of women. It's part of framing the ancient world, like the modern world in an unfortunate large part, as the realm of men with women taking secondary roles less worthy of scholarship. Now, of course, there are real issues of absence of evidence. Uh, for instance, uh, you know, textiles just don't preserve as well as precious metals. Um, you know, there is that real fact, but there is also a lot of depictions of, um, you know, textiles. And we do have a, uh, you know, plethora of fragments and even large pieces of textiles. And so it's a little bit hard to sell the idea that the reason that nobody really looks at it more deeply is because there is no ability. It's mostly that there is a conscious or probably unconscious, frankly, bias towards the work of men, because again, men are seen as the real movers and shakers of all civilization, unfortunately. Um, and, you know, there's a reason that people were so fascinated by the idea of the Amazons, because they were so outside of the realm of what people expected from a uh, culture. Now, the majority of women and men in ancient Mesopotamia, now this is from a work that's looking at a larger span of time, around 2000 years. Uh, so this means that 
this is kind of a generalization based on the patterns of life in Acadia, in Sumer, in um, some of the later Babylonian and um, other civilizations that sort of grew out of the Akkadian and Sumerian um, civilizations. So this is kind of an amalgamation, but it gives you kind of an idea of um, a little bit about that idea of what these civilizations were like. And I thought it was really fascinating. And so they would have either, they would have been either Amatum, which is slaves, or Muskenum, which is semi-free people, rather than the elite Awalatum. And all of those pronunciations are guesses. Um, I tried to look for something online, but shockingly, uh, ancient uh, Akkadian or Sumerian is not, uh, there's not a lot of YouTube videos on that. <laughs> Little is written about these classes beyond their status as objects of trade, possession, and as even collaterals against loans. We do know that at least free women in the area had the right to trade, lend, borrow, and acquire property. And so we know that there were women who acted as merchants in some of the uh, city-states that we have cuneiform tablets from. And despite this, though, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that they had equal status to men. Most women would still have been tied to a male head of the family. And again, wealthy women could afford to have more status as independent actors. Women could be sold into slavery by their fa family. Fathers, brothers, even husbands could do this. Some women became slaves when their male family member failed to repay a loan. So you could basically say, you can have this person, my slave or my wife as collateral. And if I can't pay up, you get to keep them. Um, so that's a interesting twist on things. And so in Mesopotamia, the social structure was formed via households or bitum. Women could work in the royal bitum, a governor's estate, a temple, or other clan or institutional bitum. Some may have kept their own families while working at an institution, while others might have lived and worked there as an alternative to marriage and children. Temples and palaces employed women as musicians, scribes, in administrative positions, and in cult worship. So again, especially elite women were... Um, able to have some really important uh, roles. Some would, some would again have lived in these households while others again would simply go to work each day, much like modern society. Many received food, clothing, and other items commiserate with their standing. However, women on the other end of the spectrum were seen in a much more conventional way. In early Sumerian institutions, women were found in large part in physically demanding labor, such as weaving, grinding flour, towing boats, and cutting reeds. Documents suggest they were given half the rations afforded to men. However, again, there is also evidence here that women were able to work as midwives, nurses, and even tavern keepers. This probably continued into later periods. 
As in other periods, widows would have been in a unique position. If a woman had underage children, she was allowed to manage her husband's business and property until her eldest son came of age. If there were no children, she could return to her father's home, potentially. While they generally did not inherit their husband's property, widows could keep their own possessions, which could include the dowry as well as gifts received both from her family and specifically from her husband, if he said, this is a gift to you. Of course, again, women with more wealth were much more easily able to avail themselves of this legal status. Remarriage was an option for those of lesser means and did not necessarily have to involve all of the stages of a first marriage. Women were able to bring their children to a second marriage and could be considered, in some areas, married after a period of cohabitation. And of course, we cannot forget the role of prostitutes. There is a real reason for the joke that it is the oldest profession. Again, the status of the status of and independence of prostitutes would be based on their status and wealth. So some of them were probably wealthy courtesans and some of them were probably street level prostitutes, just like we have today where we have street level prostitutes and fancy escorts. And the only difference between those two people is the money that they have in their bank account, or if they even have a bank account. Um, and, you know, the same problems would probably have arisen where sometimes it's out of necessity and sometimes it's out of choice. Witchcraft and sorcery were also very important in Mesopotamia, and women were definitely connected with the powers of sorcery, both as producers of curses and having the ability to uh, create white magic in order to combat those curses. All in all, the scholarship paints a vivid picture of a society that at times allowed women great freedom, but this was often tied to their monetary stature. Again, it seems the more things change, the more they stay the same. We know that today it's basically the same. If you are a woman who has access to money, you can make your own choices in life. Um, granted, there are more choices available to you now, but there is definitely still that real issue of of status and the fact that the options for women who live in poverty are a lot less than the options for women who live in luxury. And again, one of the things that I always like to stress is how normal these cities were. They were cities just like you see today, only they didn't have the technology that we have, but they had streets filled with people, people living in multi-story buildings, not, you know, hundred stories, but two or three, um, you know, had all of the trappings of a modern metropolis today. And this is 4,000 years ago. Um, and so it is so cool to think about this as having been a civilization so very close to ours, despite its extreme difference. All right, that is all the time we have for tonight. Uh, please come again and listen to Evidence-Based Radio.
Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.